Well, today we're starting a new sermon series about the I Am statements of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospel of John. I'm really excited about this study for us as we delve into finding out more about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Because, you know, the two are connected. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us are joined together. The identity of Jesus and the work of Jesus are coupled together in such a beautiful and amazing way. As we study these I Am statements in the Gospel of John, we'll not only deepen our understanding of who Jesus is, but also enlighten our hearts for all that he's done for us. You know, when Helen Keller was 19 months old, she contracted an illness that left her blind and deaf. It was not until she was 10 years old that she began to have meaningful conversations with those around her. It occurred when her gifted teacher, Ann Sullivan, taught her to say water, as Ann spelled water on the palm of her hand. From that pivotal experience, Helen Keller entered the wonderful world of words and names, and it transformed her life. Once Helen was accustomed to this new system of communication with others, her parents arranged for her to receive Religious instruction from the eminent Boston clergyman, Philip Brooks. One day during her lessons, Helen said these remarkable words to Brooks. I knew about God before you told me, only I didn't know his name. She said, I knew about God before you told me, only I didn't know his name. Our God has many different names and titles throughout the Bible, all of which give us a deeper insight into our God. But there's rather a unique revelation of God's name that I'd like us to turn to. Exodus chapter 3, when God was talking to Moses out of a burning bush. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 and follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. (laughs) And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's a powerful passage and as we get this incredible vision of what's going on here, God goes on there in the passage, commissioning Moses to be the deliverer of the children of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. God says, come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Then Moses questions God about his own ability to do it. And then God reassures Moses that he'll be with him That God will deliver the people. Moses will just be the means 
of God's deliverance. Then starting again in verse 13, Moses asked God a powerful and interesting question. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses, in front of that burning bush, asked God for his name. It's a personal request. It's a beautiful and intimate request. God's response is both enlightening and remarkable. God said his name is I am. I am that I am. Say to this people, I am has sent you to me. Now Moses wasn't asking the question because nobody knew God's name. God had long been called Elohim and Yahweh. If you look at verse 15 of the passage, God uses both of those uh, terms about himself. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God, Elohim, of your fathers, has sent me to you. The point is, as we said earlier, is that God's identity reflects his activity. So as God identifies himself in a new way, we get a new understanding of his activity. Moses asked God to reveal a deeper identity of himself to further confirm and reinforce his intentions of delivering the people out of Egypt. Remember how the angels told Mary and Joseph to name their son the incarnate God? They said, name him Jesus. Well, the word Jesus means Savior. Jesus' name also identified his activity. God's name, I am, also identifies God's activity. Moses says, you're about to be used of me to deliver my people from Egypt. Tell them that I am has sent you. See, God is I am. God is always fully present. God is always fully aware of everything. God is always there with his people. God is self-existent, independent, above all creation, eternal, never-changing, all-knowing, all-powerful, forever connected to his people. I am presently the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is not out there. God is not up there. God is not over there. He is the ever-present God that is always here. Always here, no matter where we are. Always here, no matter what circumstance you are in. Our God is the great I Am. He is the powerful I Am. God's people have been slaved in Egypt for 400 years. And where is God? Right there with them. I am the ever-present God. I'm the great I Am. Every Jewish person in Jesus' day knew that God's self-disclosed name is I Am. It's because everyone knew God's name as I am that Jesus uses the name I am to describe himself. Over and over again, we'll see Jesus use this name, I am, to describe who he is and what he is doing. 
One commentator wrote, in his I am statements, Jesus not only tells us who he is, but he also tells us what he can do for us and what we can become through him. If we are spiritual hungry, he offers us the bread of life. To those walking in darkness, he gives the light of life. And we need not fear death, for he is the resurrection and the life. Can we be sure of going to heaven? Yes, because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Can our lives be fruitful for his glory? Yes, if we abide in him, the true vine, and draw upon him. In Jesus Christ, the great I am, we have all that we need. As we go through this series, we'll see Jesus as the great I am. Before we jump into our passage today, let's take a moment and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we do pray now. We come before you humbly, simply asking for your word to teach us, for your Holy Spirit to comfort us and to convict us, to illumine us and give us insight, applying it to our lives. Lord, it is our desire to learn, to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus' self-disclosure as the bread of life in John chapter 6. He calls himself in John 6 the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the bread of God, the living bread. Jesus wants to teach us some very important truths about himself using the metaphor of bread. But Jesus' whole discussion of being the bread of life is set up by a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus uses a miracle multiplication of real bread to set up his teaching about spiritual bread that is much more important. So please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. And follow along as I read, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that the people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to have a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Then there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples to gather up the leftovers that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. By himself. First, we see that Jesus gave them physical bread. 
See, this miracle is one of only of a few miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. It's an amazing miracle. But part of the thing that makes this miracle so unique and so amazing isn't the miracle itself, but is the response of the crowd. See, there were 5,000 men there, not including the women and children that Jesus fed that day. Some estimate the crowd to be over 10,000 people. Philip said that even if they had 200 denarii, 200 denarii is equivalent to eight months of wages. Even if they had eight months of wages, that wouldn't be enough money to buy enough bread so that only everyone would just have a little bit. It's hard for us to imagine to go back into that first century time and to understand the regular hunger that was common for first century Israel and what they had to deal with. They had food to eat, but they were rarely ever full. It was much more common, even daily, to deal with being hungry. See, not only did Jesus feed this huge crowd, but as verse 12 says, they ate until they were full, and there were leftovers. Jesus took that kid's food, those five loaves and those two fishes, and after feeding approximately 10,000 people to their fullness, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Imagine the scene. It would have been so amazing. No one had ever done anything like this before. This type of miracle, this type of power, this way of getting a free meal was awesome. I think I'm going to follow this guy. Well, then we see the crowd's response. Verse 14 says that when the people saw this miracle, when their bellies were full, they started to make this connection that Jesus was the prophet that Moses had talked about in Deuteronomy 18.15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See, God through Moses provided the manna for the people of Israel to eat. And now God through Jesus provided bread for the people of Israel to eat. And you're thinking Jesus was doing the same thing that Moses did. But the people weren't content with one great meal. If this guy is the prophet, if this guy's like Moses, then he can feed us on a daily basis. God provided manna for nearly 40 years. Since this guy is supposed to be greater than Moses, I wonder how long he'll give us free food to fill us up. As the conversation among the crowd grew, they decided they should make Jesus their king. If he was our king, he'd feed us. If he's our king, he'd protect us. He'd defeat the Roman occupation and we could live in peace and prosperity and in power. They wanted Jesus to give to them, to bless them, to make their lives better. They had no desire at all to understand or to do what Jesus wanted them to do. They had no comprehension of of Christ's spiritual mission. They had no regard for Christ's purpose or goals. They wanted a leader who would give them what they wanted. But Jesus wanted followers who would find in him. All that they could ever need. I read that missionaries in the third world countries have a term that they use. It's called rice Christians. There are people who quickly convert to Christianity in exchange for food 
or in exchange for some physical benefit. The problem with right Christians is that when the goodies are gone, so are they. Well, these people weren't rice Christians. They were bread followers. They would follow Jesus as long as Jesus gave them bread. And as we shall see that once they understood that Jesus wasn't going to give them physical bread, but was offering them spiritual bread, they left grumbling and discontent. Oh, but they're not so different than us. You see, rice Christians, bread followers, can be found all over the world. Even in America, we're not immune to such shallowness. Many people use church for business contacts or as a community status. Many people use God for what God can give to them. I'll follow you as long as you give me what I want. It's not about God being the God of their lives, but about God giving them what they want. These people look only to God for what they can get. They're quick to turn their back on God when the inevitable happens and they don't get what they want. They're bread followers, not Christ followers. And between this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the ensuing discussion that Jesus has with this crowd in Capernaum about the true bread of life, there's another miracle. When evening had come of the, of the day of the miracle feeding, Jesus' disciples got into a boat without Jesus sailed across the Sea of Galilee towards the city of Capernaum, while Jesus withdrew by himself, probably as it was his custom, to pray. During that night voyage on the sea, it was rough, and the wind and the storms were strong, and they were struggling against it all. John 6, 19 says, And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Two miracles occurred that night. One, Jesus walked on water, and two, when Jesus got into the boat, they were immediately at land. Of course, the next morning, this this crowd that wanted to make Jesus king, they're looking all around for him. They knew that the disciples had left without him, They knew that he had withdrawn alone up to the mountain. So not finding Jesus, the crowd gets in their boats and takes the trek across the sea to look for Jesus. They want to find Jesus. They want him to do more things for them. Of course, when they get to Capernaum, Jesus is already there. But wait, you know, the facts don't add up. Since Jesus didn't leave with his disciples, how is he already here? You can't walk around the sea in one night and get to Capernaum. So verse 25 says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Hey, Jesus, don't you know that we want to follow you? You know, Jesus, don't you know that we want to make you king? We think you're great. Jesus, as only Jesus could do, takes their question and answers it by exposing their true motives. Look there at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They weren't seeking Jesus because he was proving to everyone by his miraculous signs that he was the Messiah. They weren't seeking Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord. They were seeking Jesus to get from Jesus what they wanted. They were seeking Jesus because they had ate to their full. They wanted more food. They wanted more stuff from Jesus. They were bread followers. 
not Christ followers. Well, then Jesus asked these powerful words in, in uh, verse 27. Take a look at verse 27. It says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Don't work for food that perishes. Don't seek the temporary. Don't focus on just what you want. Don't pursue mere earthly gains. Don't labor for the fleeting pleasures of this life. The void in your life, the void in your heart, the void in your soul cannot be filled with the things of earth. Philosopher Blaise Pascal famously wrote, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. There are millions upon millions upon millions of people who are content to labor for food that perishes. They're pleased to focus their life on the stuff of this earth. They seek the temporary and ignore the spiritual and purposely overlook the eternal. The question for us is, how about us? Are we content to, to labor, to work, to toil for only food that spoils? Are you content to seek the gains of this earth, the pleasures of this life over the gains of real life, eternal life in Christ? The crowd's response to Jesus again shows their shallow thinking. In verse 28 they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, the reason. I'm not supposed to work for the food that perishes, so how can I work for the food that endures? How can I earn that? They're still thinking from an earthly mindset. Jesus says to them in verse 29, you can't earn it. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, this is the perennial response of mankind. Look back again at verse 27. Jesus says to them, it was a gift, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So what's their response? What must I do? How can I earn it? Jesus said it's a gift. Man responds with, how can I earn it? Eternal life can never be earned. It can only be received. We want God, but on our terms. We want a God that we can appease. We want a God that we can kind of control by our actions. Jesus said that the work of God is that you believe in him. The work of God is that we put our faith into Jesus. The work of God is that you surrender your life, surrender your sin for his life and for his salvation. So then look at their response in verse 30, 31. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Their response, again, which is a typical response, even of today, is to God's offering of eternal life, to this gift they gave these twofold response. First, they said, well, I'll believe you if you prove it. Give me more evidence. Now, just think about that for a moment. Just think about what they just said there. This crowd had seen many miracles of Jesus. The latest of which was this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They were there. They not only saw the miracle, they literally ate the miracle. See, the problem wasn't the signs. The problem wasn't the evidence. The problem was their hearts. 
which Jesus had already so powerfully pointed out in verse 26, when he said to them, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate to your fill. Oh, they said, if only we had more evidence, then I would believe. But the problem was not for lack of evidence, but lack of heart. If they said, I see it, then I will believe. But they saw it. And they didn't believe. Because seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. Seeing doesn't bring us believing. Believing brings us insight so that we can see. One commentator wrote, most of us in our desire for meaningful faith seem to be saying to God, show me and I'll believe. That approach never works. God has made it very clear in the life and the teaching of Jesus' Son that the process must be reversed. He says to us, believe in me and I'll show you. See, faith in Jesus is not a work of evidence. It's a work of the Spirit. Faith in Jesus is not a list of facts, but it's a person that you put your faith and your trust into. Well, secondly, this crowd responded, I'll believe if you give me what I want. Moses gave them manna. What are you going to give me? Jeannie Zorn writes, As a new Christian, I presume Jesus' main job was taking care of me. He led me to a job, roommates to share, apartment costs, and a car that ran. But after a while, my tastes got fussier. Like the Israelites waking up to manna each morning, I got tired of the same old, same old. I, I wanted a home with more privacy, a more interesting and better paying but less stressful job, and a shinier new car. My list continued to grow. I wanted Jesus to perk me up when I was down, to remove all my difficulties and make life a whole lot easier. When those things didn't come, I felt as if Jesus had walked away from me. What an honest evaluation. Think about it. Is, is your relationship with Jesus focused on what he will give you or what he's already given you through his death and resurrection? Is your relationship with God about him giving you what you want or giving him what he deserves? I'll believe in you, Jesus, as long as you make my life better. But Jesus responds to them saying that the bread you should be seeking is the bread of God, the bread that my Father gives, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He tells them they're seeking the wrong bread. They're seeking false bread, temporary bread. They're seeking earthly bread. They're seeking bread for the body. He tells them that the bread God gives them, the true bread from heaven, gives life. And boy, do they totally miss the point. Look there at verse 34. They totally missed it. They respond, Sir, give us this bread always. See, they're still thinking earthly. They're still thinking about bread to eat. They're still focused on what can God give me? How much can I get from God? They're still thinking from their bellies. It's kind of like the response from the woman at the well, if you remember. When Jesus in John chapter 4 said that he would give her uh, a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And how did she respond? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. They missed it. They missed it. Think for a moment. Evaluate. it. Are you missing it? Are you looking for Jesus to do for you what you want? 
for what you can get out of it. All the while, you're actually missing it. You're actually missing out on what Jesus really wants to give you. Himself, eternal life, a spiritual reservoir that satisfies the deepest longings of your soul. Jesus gave such an amazing answer to the request in John 6, 35 and following. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, have, to you that have seen me, and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the third day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus said this spiritual bread of eternal life, that bread of life is me, he said. He said, I, I come from heaven. I've been sent by God to do exactly what he wants me to do so that everyone who looks at me and believes should have eternal life. Jesus continued in verse 47 and following. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life, for the life of this world is my flesh. The bread that I will give is my flesh. Jesus is the bread of life, and the bread that he gives is his life. You see, the metaphor of the bread of life is that true satisfaction is not found in anything on this earth. Nothing on earth can satisfy the God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. Only Jesus can do that. Only the bread of life can do that, because the spiritual bread that he offers is himself, his flesh and blood. It is his crucifixion is the bread of life. So what kind of bread are you living for? Bread that spoils, bread that perishes, the temporary bread of this fleeting world. Are you living for the bread of life, the bread that endures to eternal life, the spiritual bread that came down from heaven, Jesus? Your bread follower, your Christ follower. Would you give up on God if he doesn't give you what you want? Are you going to give your all to God? Because he's already given you his all, all that you could ever need. What kind of bread are you living for? Let's pray. Father, in these precious moments now, where our thoughts are quiet and we're just kind of still before you, we pray you would guide and direct us, teach us, challenge us, especially now as we prepare for this communion, this commemoration of the bread of life, as we remember your body, your blood. Lord, challenge us 
Are we bread followers? Or are we Christ followers? In Jesus' name, amen.